0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm Tim Cronin. We're here with Dan Holloway. Hi, Dan. Hi there. Dan, you are, you're wearing two hats today. You're an attorney, and I'm gonna ask you about that first, but then you're also an author of a really interesting book that we'll talk about next. First of all, could you tell us a bit about your career as an attorney?
2: Yeah, these days I am working with a great friend of mine, Lloyd Bell in Atlanta, Bell Law Firm. We do almost exclusively medical malpractice. I've been with Lloyd for, oh, I think about three and a half years, maybe going on four years. Mostly we are suing over care that goes wrong in a hospital setting. We are um, trying to find ways of bringing into the cases the negligence of healthcare administrators because within the healthcare industry, it's common knowledge that most medical error is kind of set up or facilitated in some way by system failures that the individual physicians, the individual nurses cannot control and are not responsible for. They are the responsibility of the administrators and the administrators typically get a pass. You know, Usually the only people who get blamed are the individual providers. We're trying to fix that. Dan, I do a lot of medical malpractice myself and I often get frustrated by
0: that very problem because what you said is obviously very true. And so I'll have experts come in and talk about how this was a systemic failure by everybody on the team involved within the constraints that they practice in. And then Med Mal Defense counsel goes after my expert implying no you have to tell me which individual doctor or nurse you have to tell me that when the problem is bigger and it may not be an individual nurse or doctor's
1: fault so we're trying to do the same thing often too well the second hat that you wear is author and your book is called lawyers judges and semi-rational beasts a 2020 book let's start with the title
2: well, the dominant lesson to come out of all of the empirical study of how people's minds work, if you had to boil it down to a bumper sticker, it would be that we are not the rational creatures we think we are. What was the source of your passion for that? So I started out, my first job after clerking was at Boys Schiller and Flextor in New York. And somewhere along the line, There, just randomly, I picked up Antonio D'Amasio's book, Descartes' Error, and it was fascinating. But you don't get too far into the book if you're reading it as a lawyer before you start realizing, oh, you know, this has real implications for the work that we do. So I just started reading more books. And then, I don't know, a few years into that process, I started realizing that, you know, I was forgetting most of what I'd read. Well, I've been aware of that problem, you know, from the time I was a little kid you read stuff and maybe it's fascinating, maybe it's useful, but by the time you're done with the book, you've already forgotten 70% of it. So after I'd been reading books in this area for a few years, I decided to start taking notes in some kind of a systematic way and decided that wasn't helping me that much either. And what I really needed to do was just make a major project of going back through all of the stuff that I thought was reliable and useful somehow create some kind of personal work product that would let me synthesize it and have a way of drawing on it when I needed to. And then I worked on that for some lengthy period of time, too, before deciding, you know, well, heck, I'm probably not the only one who could find some value in this kind of work product. So why
1: don't I just do it up as a book? So here we are. A lot of people don't like to think about ourselves as human animals. And I think what's interesting about a lot of your research is that you dig into how we work. So maybe we can start out, what is cognitive science? I see that you have a definition in your book, but maybe you can describe it as a field to those who aren't familiar with that term.
2: Well, I have to apologize to the academics who practice in the field. I'm using the phrase cognitive science as a very loose shorthand for any kind of empirical study that even indirectly gets at how human minds work. So, you know, the way I use it, it would include things as far from strict cognitive science as bioanthropology. You know, I think people like Franz Duval, who's a primatologist, I think there are useful things that come out of the study of apes that have indirect maybe, but still useful insight into how human beings work, including judges and jurors and lawyers. So the way I use it, cognitive science is not at all a strict term. I think it's enormously useful if approached in a particular way. It's very useful in thinking through, in a serious, systematic way, aspects of how human minds work, how communication works, how persuasion works. And I think that this kind of systematic, careful study is very important for lawyers for a couple of reasons. One is that we are vastly complicated creatures, and in creating a model of how we work, you have to simplify. And the simplified models of mind that we carry about in our heads and use day to day will be oversimplified in ways that really matter when you are doing the work of trying to persuade a stranger to take your view of a thing. And I think a thoughtful, careful reading of the literature and an effort to kind of grapple with the complexity and the nuances, some of which are surprising not everything is obvious. You know, if you just approach people according to whatever sense of how people work, if you're just using whatever sense you just happen to develop as you grow up and move about life, you will have a more incomplete, more misleading idea of how people work than if you read the literature and make a real effort at synthesizing it and then shaping your behavior, your work practices, your communication practices around that more carefully developed idea of how we work.
1: My first boss told me, this is when I was a brand new attorney, he said, a trial is basically you've got the instructions, the jury instructions that tell the jury what to do, and you got facts, and then the jury puts the facts together with the instructions, and that comes up with a verdict. This is simplistic, but he basically is promoting what I think you are mentioning as the rational person model. Is that at all-useful model for understanding what we do as attorneys?
2: It's true as far as it goes, it's significantly incomplete and the things that it leaves out make a big difference. Among lawyers, it seems to me there are two gravely mistaken models of how jurors work and judges too, but you know, for trial lawyers at least we're focused more frequently on jurors. So one model is jurors are very rational. We give them facts and rules and they process them in some analytical way and they come out with a verdict that is rational in the sense that we normally take the word rational to mean. That's one view. It's probably younger lawyers who are inclined to that view. Anybody who's had much experience with actual jurors are more likely to have the other simplistic view, which is jurors are driven by all kinds of irrelevant emotions. They can be easily led astray, easily led by the nose, you know, both of those ideas of how people work and jurors are people. So anything that's true generally of jurors is true generally of all of us. Both of those models, they both have some truth to them. They're both woefully inadequate. And to the extent they are guiding our work, we are not going to work very well because they lead us to ignore a lot of things that we could be doing to improve our chances. So the title of my book, Semi-Rational Beasts, is an attempt to capture in a phrase where we are. Of course, we have the capacity for rational, analytical thought, and we exercise that and jurors do. But also, of course, there are very serious constraints on our ability to think rationally. There is no way to extricate emotion from our reasoning, our decision-making process. There is no way to extricate the impact of our various worldviews. You know, the presence of those things doesn't make us flatly irrational in the way that some people would slander the human race, but it certainly does prevent us from ever being the kind of purely rational creatures that we imagine angels to be. You know, so if we are semi-rational beasts, what are the useful generalizable insights that we can gain about how in this, you know, sort of twilight zone of semi-rationality How do things work in that zone? Which is where all human communication and persuasion happens. You can start by getting rid of either of those two binary views. We absolutely are not strictly rational creatures, and we absolutely are not just feckless, purely emotion-driven creatures who have no ability for careful
1: thought or rational analysis. You have a line in your book that you say, brains are not designed for truth. And a lot of people would find that to be a shocking thing. But could you talk about that for a bit?
2: Yeah. I mean, this kind of goes back to the point that it's an uncomfortable thought for a lot of people that human beings are animals. It's obvious that we are physical creatures moving about in a physical world and there are threats to our survival and there are things we have to do in order to survive. We have to eat. We have to drink. We have to avoid getting swallowed by pythons if you happen to live in the Florida Everglades. There's all kinds of physical stuff that we have to do in order to survive and thrive. Well, the brain is integral to our ability to do those things. That's the primary purpose of the brain is to keep us going. And it gets very complicated because we're social creatures. And so a lot of the things that we have to do in order to survive and thrive have to do with social activity, have to do with communication, with persuasion, you know, so on and so forth, including not being persuaded by people who might do us harm. But while it is true that human beings have to have some capacity to see the truth, to see facts as they are. It's also true that a lot of what we need in order to survive and thrive is not necessarily to see truth as it is. Some of it is to be able to dissemble, to hold tribes together, to hold social groups together there's all kinds of things that go into what the human brain is designed for other than simply seeing truth as it is but you can see really clear examples of this very easily If you go online and you know just google the phrase visual illusions you can instantly get one example after another of visual illusions that trick your brain into thinking you are seeing something that you know you are not seeing. I think probably the simplest visual illusion, as an example, the Müller-Lyer lines, you take two horizontal lines of exactly the same length. You put them on a page right next to each other, one above the other, and then you draw fins on the two ends of each line. But you make it so that the fins on the top line are pointing in a different direction than the fins on the other. And for almost everyone, those two horizontal lines now look like they are of different lengths. It's bizarre the first time you see it, but that's the effect. Well, you know, there's a very simple example of your brain being designed in such a way that it misperceives reality. And it's not just misperceiving. There are all kinds of visual illusions. There are auditory illusions. There are cognitive illusions. You start just inventorying all of the well-documented, very easy to experience illusions we are subject to. That should be enough to convince you that our brains, while they are in part designed, to see the world as it is so that we can navigate it successfully. They are not designed for abstract truth. They are designed for the end goal is letting us survive and thrive. And seeing truth as it is, seeing the world as it is in all aspects, in all respects, isn't necessary for that.
1: What you said reminds me of uh, Daniel Kahneman's comment in Thinking Fast and Slow, which, by the way, is a book I know a lot of lawyers have read carefully. And he mentions the visual illusions as very analogous to the heuristics and biases that are within us, that it's just like that visual illusion you mentioned. You look at it and you can't not see the illusion, no matter how hard you try. In fact, he expressed frustration on whether one can, in lifetime, overcome the cognitive fallacies and biases for that reason. They're very, very strong. I think the comparison of visual
2: illusions to cognitive illusions is strong. Precisely for the reason Kahneman talks about, which is you can know that the cognitive illusion is there. You can know that you are subject to it. You can resolve to fight against it. You can resolve not to be influenced by it. That resolution is bound to fail. They seem to basically be baked into our brains. One example. So dealing with another person and the other person tells you something with an air of absolute confidence. We know that people listening to that expression of absolute confidence will be impressed by it. We will take that confidence as a sign of reliability. I know that. I know that that is a human failing. I know that it's nonsense. I know intellectually that somebody else's confidence is no sign that what they are saying is true and can be relied on. I know that. I've known it for years and years. But more or less, every time somebody says something to me with an air of absolute confidence, it still feels impressive to me. It still feels like it is reliable. You know, so here's a very narrow tip or trick for jury selection. Next time you are picking a jury, kick your consultant out of the room if they speak with an unreasonable degree of confidence. Because if they are absolutely confident about, you know, this is a good juror, that is a bad juror, their confidence is probably unreasonable. It is really easy to fall for the illusion that confidence indicates reliability. I mean, there are a number of problems here, but you will be unduly influenced by the advice of this one person who is saying, oh, you definitely want this person on or off the jury. You'll be unduly influenced by that if they're expressing it with great confidence unreasonable confidence in situations where you have to make important decisions, especially under time pressure, that unreasonable confidence is dangerous and you should get
1: rid of that consultant. A lot of judges will look straight at you and say, I'm not gonna decide this case based upon emotion. I'm gonna set the emotion aside and I'm gonna decide this rationally. So counsel, don't get all passionate about this. We're gonna look at the law. What's your reaction to that?
2: At one level, the judge who says, I'm gonna decide without regard to emotion, the judge is just wrong. There is no way to decide anything without emotion, and there is no human being who can completely segregate the effects of emotion. So on that level, the judge is wrong. But different people do have different degrees of ability to apply cold analysis to something. Different people have different levels of self-awareness about what emotions they are feeling and about an ability to be self-critical and to you know, counteract them. If I'm dealing with somebody I dislike, and I know I dislike them, and I have to make a decision that affects their interests, and I want to be fair because I value fairness, then I can, if I'm self-aware, I can make a conscious intellectual effort to set aside my feelings about that person. And you know, we all have this ability, and we have it in varying degrees, and the degrees to which we have it will vary from one situation to another. So I am not a cynic or at least I'm not a thoroughgoing cynic about the ability of judges or jurors to recognize emotion as irrelevant to a particular decision and to at least mitigate the effect of the emotion.
1: You spend quite a bit of time in your book warning us about the depth and breadth of the unconscious. Would you like to say a word about what's going on underneath the surface and to what extent we are driven by the things we are not aware of? we have deep, deep ignorance of ourselves. One of
2: my favorite books is Tim Wilson's book, Strangers to Ourselves. Most of our mental activity happens unconsciously. And by unconscious, I just mean we're not consciously thinking about it. We're frequently not consciously aware of what's going on. You and I are talking to each other. An audience is hearing us talk. We are all, at least those of us who are native English speakers, we are all understanding the language with absolutely no effort at all. You know, We're not making any conscious effort to figure out what each other is saying, what we're hearing. All of that. Work, which is vastly complicated. All of that work just happens instantaneously with no conscious effort. You know, when I talk about the unconscious, that's what I mean. You know, mental activity that occurs without conscious effort and often without even conscious awareness. So if you're sitting as a juror on a case, you are hearing all this stuff. And you are responding to it in some way. You're putting a story together. You're making sense of it. You are seeing points where the people in the story did something wrong or did something right. This information is coming in at you and you're making sense of it. And you're doing that mostly automatically without conscious effortful thought and you're having emotional responses to it you know you're feeling critical toward this character in the story you're feeling sympathetic toward this other character in the story and it's all just happening automatic without effort well, whatever sense you're making of the story, that is going to hugely impact your decision making. You don't control it, you know, you make whatever sense you make of it. You know, you don't have a lot of agency or control about whether you perceive this or that in one way or the other. When somebody listens to a sentence I utter, they don't have any control over whether they understand the English language sentence that they are hearing or not. You just you understand it or you don't. And most of our mental activity as we go through life happens in that way. It happens automatically without effortful, intellectual, conscious effort on our part. And it drives most of our decision making. There are times, like when you're a judge having to rule on a motion or you're a juror having to vote on a verdict, there are times when we have to justify ourselves. And most often, I believe, the process of coming to a decision and justifying the decision happen in that order. That is, you come to a decision and then you justify it. I mean, we do have the ability to do it the other way. We have the ability to effortfully, consciously reason through a problem and come to the answer only at the end. We process the information automatically without effort, unconsciously. We come up with a decision and then we justify the decision. One of the solid insights to be drawn from the cognitive science literature is that when you are making your case, you have to do both the story and the analysis because the decision maker needs the analysis because you have to justify the decision and they can't do that without the analysis. But you tell the story first, and then you walk through the analysis because it's the story that, if all goes well, will lead the decision maker to the decision. And then you provide the justification.
0: So, Dan, I've long thought that I'm trying my cases on two fronts, emotionally and logically, and first and foremost, emotionally. I want the jurors to be prejudiced against the other side and like my client more. I want to be presenting things in a way that hopefully my version of the story aligns more with their preconceived beliefs and worldview, and then trying to provide the rationale and logic and facts to arm them to argue with jurors who maybe emotionally don't want to side with me. Is that a good way to think about it? And are there good like top-level advice or guidelines about things to keep in mind in trying to present your case on both fronts?
2: Well, that's exactly the way I think about it. With one caveat though, we need to be careful about the word emotion because people of different levels of experience will hear that word emotion in different ways. So, less experienced, less sophisticated people hearing the word emotion in this context, you know, talking about trying a case through the emotion of it, will think that you're talking about displaying emotion in the courtroom, presenting overtly emotional testimony, you know, so the poor plaintiff who cries on the stand to show how horrible it all is. The word emotion has a lot of negative connotations. In this conversation, when you and I are talking about emotion, we're talking about the emotional responses that any person will have automatically, inevitably. We are not saying or recommending that lawyers trying cases or you know, making arguments to a judge should make overt, explicit appeals to emotion. That's a good way to lose.
1: Could you tell us about the impact and the power and the importance of understanding how to tell a good story or to make use of stories in the courtroom?
2: We know a lot about how stories work, how a story is structured. Obviously, a story is not just a list of facts. It's a sequence of facts arranged in a particular way, and the basic structure of what counts as a story is a person we have some sympathy for because we identify with them in some way, encounters a problem or has some goal, and there's difficulty, and then they work through the difficulty, and they come out the other end, hopefully, with some degree of a happy ending. We talk about stories a lot. The word story is used prolifically and promiscuously by lawyers, but often without any real awareness that it's not a story unless it has the structure of a story and it won't be as engaging and it won't get the audience emotionally involved unless it has the structure of a story. You know, it's easy to take any lawsuit and structure it as a story because, you know, there is a dispute, there is a character, you are struggling through the conflict. But in developing cases, we have time at the beginning to kind of think through how to tell this in a way that gives it an actual story structure that will be naturally engaging to an audience.
1: If I could just uh, follow up one more thing on the stories. I was impressed with the way you set forth all the advantages of storytelling. This is paraphrasing. They help us organize information and relate the pieces of the case to each other. They help us remember the information. They evoke unstated facts. They indicate unstated causality and intention. And it seemed like that's exactly what's going on. If you can find a good storyline, and a lot of us already know these stories because a lot of them appear in other parts of our lives. If you can draw connections from your case to something that we all recognize as a, you know, a prototypical story that we've seen in movies and in real life, you're way ahead because you're not just describing your case now, you're describing somewhat of a universal description of a human set of interactions that people have expectations about and they kind of know where to go already.
2: Right. Stories are incredibly powerful in that way. And, you know, when you're doing focus groups, the whole thing about putting the story together, finding the story that will work for this case, for this jury pool, obviously, that is hugely important. And if you can do it right, if you can identify the specific facts to include and the sequencing, you can be well on your way to success by the end of opening statement. You know, the trick, of course, is identifying which facts to include and what sequence to put them in. But in pinning down the nuances, focus groups are very useful for seeing, you know, what train of path an audience will go down if you give them these two facts in this sequence. But if you can get that right, you may not have to provide too much strict proof of causation because you put the story together right and people will draw inferences of causation automatically. And once they perceive the story in that way, once they perceive causation, then to justify the conclusion of causation becomes much easier. We so frequently, you know, just kind of drop the ball on these things because it feels like kind of soft work. We get our heads stuck in the analytical merits of the case and we avoid this. You know, we never get around to it.
1: Dan, we're going to pause this interview and I appreciate your willingness to come back for one more episode and we will do that. But thank you for being here for this episode. This is another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. And I'm Tim Cronin. And we'll see you next time.
0: The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.